Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion. We are so honored to be joined on this episode by Judy Kolditz. Judy is an occupational therapist and certified hand therapist who has contributed to the field of hand therapy for a number of years through sharing her knowledge. She has published journal articles, written book chapters, and provided educational offerings on a variety of hand therapy topics. On this episode, she shares with us a concept for treating stiff hands that she developed called casting motion to mobilize stiffness. We discuss how this concept came to be and how we can apply this technique in our clinical practice. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Judy. Judy, thank you so much for being with us this evening. We're excited about this conversation and we will just dive right in. So our our topic this evening is casting motion to mobilize stiffness, CMMS, and This is a concept. Am I right in that you first published about this in 2002? Oh, I have a very bad um, memory as to chronology. It was many years ago. Let's just put it that way. Okay, (laughs) Okay, we'll put it that way. So why don't you give us a background on what this is and how this concept came to be and how you gave us this tool for our toolbox? Well, I have to say... It's probably one of the most extraordinary experiences I ever had as a therapist. So I owned a clinic. Again, this was many years ago. So insurance was very different, you know, and the the length of time over which you saw patients was very different. And we had this lady, she had had a distal radius fracture and she had the stiff hand, you know, that just would not go away. I was not treating her. A therapist I employed was treating her. And it seems she just stuck around forever. And I finally realized as the owner of the practice, I really needed to get involved and figure out what was going on and see if we couldn't come to some resolution. And we we did that and met with the physician. There was nothing for the surgeon to do. There was no one place where surgery would resolve the stiff hand. And I just thought to myself, we have to do something out of the box for this woman. We have to change what we're doing. What we're doing is not working. And she was the typical patient. She would come in for therapy. We would mobilize her and her motion looked great when she left. But when she came back again, it was always the same. Very typical, never able to keep what she gained in therapy. So I said to her, I said, what is it you want? And she says, well, I would just like to be able to, she wanted to hold a sponge or a rag and wipe off the countertop. I remember that as one thing. She wanted slight flexion in her fingers. And I thought, okay, let's make that our goal. Let's just try something different. I thought she can't be much worse because she was relatively non-functional. So using a lot of plaster of Paris and being comfortable with it because I hate to admit this publicly, but I'm old enough that I used plaster Paris as a young therapist. The low temperature splinting materials were just beginning. So I put a cast on her and I put a hood over her fingers to flex them slightly. Now, when I did that, she was unable to pull away from that hood. Okay. 
And I thought, all right, we're going to see if we can stiffen her, but in a more functional position. And I, I don't remember the exact interval, but it was a few days. Had her come back. And when she walked in and sat down, she was able to touch her palm with her fingers. And I had to sit down. I mean, I thought it was sort of a mirage. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I still can't quite believe it because we all know the time and energy it takes to resolve stiffness. And she had done it in a few days. Now, it wasn't a perfect fist, okay? It was really using her superficialis, but it was something extraordinary compared to where she had been. And, you know, it took me a long while to figure out the whys and hows and wherefores. But it was such a dramatic response. I thought, all right, there is something here. We need to chase this and figure out what it is. And so over time, I figured out she couldn't do anything else except flex. And it's human nature to want to move. So she just moved away from the hood because, you know, that's all she could do. She couldn't straighten. Her wrist was immobilized. Her MPs couldn't go much of anywhere. And I slowly started using it more and more in different ways with different patients before I told anybody because I thought people are going to think I'm absolutely crazy. (laughs) And that's really how I evolved was just trial and error. So then since then, have there been iterations of this and have you seen it kind of evolve over these last several years? I would say yes and no. I did teach a course for some years where we included the plaster of Paris and we talked about the the rationale and the clinical concept. But there seems to be, particularly now, a really large stumbling block because therapists even struggle to learn to handle low-temperature thermoplastic. And plaster of Paris is totally out of their wheelhouse. And yet I feel strongly it needs to be plaster of Paris because that's the most intimate mold you can get. And part of a stiff hand is this chronic, almost fibrotic edema that you really need to address. And something that doesn't fit intimately can't do that. But as I worked through it, and then ironically, I started doing some investigation and learning more about the intrinsic muscles and particularly the interosteae. And it suddenly kind of all fell in place for me because the single most common problem that you see in the stiff hand is interosseous muscle tightness. And we get tricked into thinking we need to work for full finger flexion. We think of that as functional. But you cannot get full finger flexion without elongating the interosseae. And their longest position is blocking the MP in extension and allowing active IP flexion. Or you can do passive, but we want active because The most important piece of this that I still feel like I know very little about is that we need to retrain the brain. Patient has an injury. They cannot move their normal pattern of motion. So they start moving the only way they can or the only way that's easy for them. And they literally retrain their own brain and define that as flexion. So they need a period of time when they are initiating finger flexion, not at the MP joints, but at the IP joints, which is the normal way, 
to retrain the brain so that once they're out of the cast, they spontaneously begin flexion in the normal manner. And they're not fighting against tight enterosis muscles. Now, sims can be used for a lot of different things, not just that. But to me, that is the, the really big focus of what we can have control over with sims the most easily. I've used sims post-op after tenolysis, either in a rheumatoid patient or a post-trauma patient. It just helps the person focus on how to move. It literally teaches them how to move correctly, productively, and it will not allow them to move what I call the wrong way. It sort of traps them. (laughs) I think this conversation for me personally is very timely. I actually have two patients right now who have been moving incorrectly for years. I have one patient who had a flexor tendon injury about a year and a half ago, but didn't realize it and has been flexing just at the MP joint. He's taught himself. That's his what path of least resistance. Let's just flex through the MP. So then he has a surgical procedure to fix the flexor tendon, but his brain knows this is the easiest way to move. And so I thought, oh my goodness, well, I'm going to talk to the expert this evening and I'm going to get her ideas And I have the same thing with another patient that similar, he had a repair many years ago somewhere else, but I treat pediatric patients. He was a little bit younger and now he's a little bit older, several years out, different circumstances, but he's doing the exact same thing. He has learned incorrect movement patterns. And I just was thinking, man, even, well, maybe my question to you is with these patients that are a little bit further out can movement still be achievable? Can retraining happen at this point? Absolutely, but it is not an easy solution. Think of the time that has evolved from the first injury until now. And from what I heard, you're talking about not only months, but years. Okay. And the brain has identified that as flexion for all that period of time. You are not going to change that overnight. Right. (laughs) Okay. And so the question is, is this individual willing to invest the time and energy that is necessary to make that change in their own brain? Because I guarantee you what will happen. You put the cast on and they will move differently and you'll almost see a light bulb come on in their eyes. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's the way I need to move. Oh yeah, I get it now. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's like they find something that they didn't even know they'd lost. But you leave them in there three or four days a week, two weeks or whatever, you know, and it's been two years and they're doing great and they look great. But as a therapist, you get really nervous because we were taught not to mobilize or restrain or prevent any motion. And so what happens is you take the cast off and I will guarantee you, absolutely guarantee you that that person will revert back immediately because reverting back, it's still the dominant thing in the brain. And you have not had enough period of time to change that yet. They have to really experience this In my experience, it doesn't have to be equal to the time they were out, but it has to be somewhat proportional. If it's been two years, 
you got to do a month or two or three or four or five. I don't know how long. And every time I teach this, people say, well, how long do you keep them in the cast? Or when do you change the cast? Or how many casts? And the answer is, I do not have the answer to that. It is totally and absolutely individually patient dependent. But all I can say is if it's been two years, you know immediately that two weeks is not going to get it. It's just proportionally totally out of balance. Yeah. I have a patient as well. She had a distal radius fracture, dorsal spanning plate in for, gosh, three months. (laughs) It was a severe fracture, but her fingers it is minimal motion. And I think she could benefit so much from this. But where do you start? Do you start with the full dorsal hood? Do you start just blocking the MPs? I cannot answer that unless I can see her move. Okay. I have two or three things probably in response to that. The first thing is she broke her wrist. That's where she's had the surgery. And so everybody's worried, okay, she's going to have wrist motion. And so you think, no, I don't want to put her in a cast because that's the most important thing. Well, your wrist motion doesn't do you much good if you don't have finger motion. You can't load your wrist or you can't do anything. So I have no qualms whatsoever casting a wrist like that. But what I have learned is many of those wrists, and this may or may not be your case, but a typical distal radius fracture, they lack wrist extension. They certainly lack good control of it, and they lack reciprocal wrist extension during finger flexion. So we put her in a cast, and her wrist is slightly positioned in extension because that is the position where she's going to have the most power to actively flex her fingers. And you think, okay, well, I've just immobilized the wrist. But what I have seen is that inside the cast, the person uses their wrist extensors. And so when you take the cast off and you say to that person without cueing them, okay, bend your fingers down for me, you will nearly always see the ability to stabilize the wrist and extension during finger flexion. Now, that will deteriorate because wrist extension is weak. You know, it hasn't been loaded. It hasn't been used through range or against resistance, but it's there cortically. And this is one of the important pieces when you do start weaning someone. Normal weaning, you think, well, okay, I'll let them out for short periods of time, X number of times a day. And I will over time increase that time out of the cast, right? But what happens is because you know those muscles are weak, If you allow them to lengthen their time out of the cast too quickly, you just allow those muscles to fatigue and the whole pattern deteriorates. But if instead of longer periods of time out of the cast, you create more periods out of the cast, but each period is relatively short, meaning, okay, they're out, but not to the point of total fatigue. They go back in, they're using it in a supportive manner, but they're still contracting the muscle then they come out for a short period. So to me, it's a very different kind of weeding. Now you ask, where do you start? The injury was to the wrist. The hand itself had no physical trauma to it. Its stiffness is a result of edema 
and immobility. And if I were a betting person, now I did buy a lottery ticket recently, but I didn't. (laughs) If I were a betting person, I would say probably 95% chance that the single greatest impediment to that individual flexing their fingers is interosseous muscle tightness. Okay. Now there, there's probably accompanying joint tightness or stiffness, and there's probably this poor pattern of motion. There are all kinds of other things, but the biggest reason they can't move is tight interosseous muscles. So not having seen your patient, again, I don't know that this is accurate for her, but I would bet a lot of money that it would be. So think about interosseous muscle tightness on a continuum. Well, a little bit of tightness. And as my mother used to say, tight as Dick's hat band. That was an ad many, many years ago in the last century, I think. So if you think of the spectrum of tightness and your patient is really, really tight with the interosseous muscles. What you are asking, you are asking them to find their flexor digitorum profundus. And as they find that, which they haven't used or recruited in a good while, and which also may be adherent, you're also asking them to mobilize stiff joints. And you're asking them to elongate these really tight interosseous muscles. So if you take really stiff fingers with extreme interosseous muscle tightness and you block the MPs in full extension, you're going to make it almost impossible for them to be successful. They have too much to work against. And that flexor digitorum profundus hasn't done that in ages. So someone who is really tight in interosseous muscles, you need to start by blocking the MPs, but let those MPs be in some flexion. That's just your starting point. And then you serially take them through multiple casts where you slowly bring the MPs up into greater extension as the IP flexion improves. Because you really want to get your joints moving. You want to get the tendon gliding. And not just gliding, but you, you really want the individual to know how to engage their profundus. Because they cannot elongate anything if they can do that. And... You will absolutely, without question, stiffen the MP joints. You immobilize them in extension, they will get stiff. I will guarantee that. And as I've often said in my courses, a bead of sweat should roll down your spine as you're doing this. You should be uncomfortable because this is outside of the realm of what we have traditionally and normally thought was productive therapeutic approach. Okay, but with a distal radius fracture patient, there has been no trauma to the hand itself. So there's no adherence of the extensors on the dorsum. There's no impediment to the MP joints flexing because the MP joints themselves have not been injured. So I have been successful in individuals removing the cast starting them on the weaning, and never, ever doing anything to regain MP joint flexion other than showing them how to actively isolate MP flexion. And that is not with IP extension. I ask them to flex 
with a superficialis fist. So what happens is the pulp of each finger is sitting on top of the palm and then ask them to slide their fingertips down the palm. So you're sliding the fingertips proximally. You do that and you can feel your MP joints being pulled down by your interosseous muscles. Now, if someone has had dorsal trauma and the extensor tendons are adherent, then you still need to start with the interosseous because, I mean, they've had massive swelling in their hand as a result of a crush injury. But when you start weaning, you can't then go to holding the MPs in flexion so that you can elongate the extrinsic extensors. You have to do that part-time and go back to keeping the interossei elongated. You've got to kind of have one cast and then the other and go back and forth. It takes more time and effort. Did I answer the question? Yeah, that was definitely helpful. And I think some of the listeners can definitely grasp some of that information and be able to use that and incorporate because there's, I'm sure I'm not the only one in the world, right, that has that question. (laughs) It's very difficult, I think, to wrap your head around it because it is such a totally different approach to what we're accustomed to. And it really takes a lot of effort to mainly let go of the old stuff. But what I learned from that first patient is if you keep doing what you've been doing and it's not successful, you need to let go of it. You need to do something dramatically different. And that is how this got started. So, One of the points that you made in that initial paper was letting go of the thought of every joint needs to have free motion in all the directions that it's allowed. And I think sometimes, especially with finger stiffness, we think, well, we want the finger to bend. We want the finger to straighten. We take a couple steps forward and we lose this. But you're saying like, hey, focus on this one direction and it's it's okay. It's okay to, to focus on the flexion and get those stiff fingers moving. Right. But the nice thing about Sims is You can put an individual in a cast. You, of course, stabilize the wrist and you can immobilize the MP joints in whatever the ideal position is. But you can put plaster dorsally and volarly. So when they are extended, they're hitting the block that's over the proximal phalanx and they have better IP extension. So you can resolve flexion contractors of the IP joints with the SIMS technique. Now, the hood may be helpful for circumstances where they can't find their FDP and getting them started. But an equally good way, I think, to help somebody find their FDP is to take a very short piece of alumafoam. You know, it's a piece of aluminum that has foam on one side that is used to splint fingers. Bend it down a little bit, and it's just long enough to go from the end of the finger to the PIP joint. So it covers the top of the middle and distal phalanges. And you bend it right at the DIP joint. So the DIP joint is slightly flexed and you tape it around the middle phalanx. So it's almost like you have a reverse mallet. You know, you're holding the DIP in slight flexion. And you may need to do this on more than one finger, but you're Your instruction to the patient is 
When you start motion, the first thing I want you to do is to look at your fingernail. And I want you to bring your fingernail away from this, what it is, is the foam above. I want you to see some space between there before any other joint moves. Can you focus on that? And I was taught the same way everybody else was that, you know, you should leave, everything should move, you should always be productive, blah, 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 blah. I see that now as sort of the shotgun approach. You know, there's this shot that's scattered all over and you put effort into one thing and then it, but that counteracts another. And I now see therapy, particularly for something like this, as much more of a step approach. When I see the patient, my question is, what is the single greatest impediment to this individual regaining the needed motion? I choose one thing. And that is the only goal between that visit and the next visit. And they may not get that by the next visit. That goal may continue a while. But I don't add anything else until they have achieved I wouldn't say fully achieved the goal because, you know, that's really complex for full finger flexion, but they made it great strides in gaining whatever it was they needed. And then we add the next step and we go about it sequentially rather than simultaneously. Well, that sounds like the approach of even that retraining, that motor training, that motor learning and ensuring that our patients are moving productively and that the motion that they're producing isn't just this, oh, we, ju- we just want to see it move. No, we want it to be a productive movement and we want it to be the correct movement. You're absolutely right. You know, we all are taught to do tendon gliding exercises as an example. And so therapists are often worried, well, I can't do tendon gliding exercises with my patient if they're in a cast. Well, Is that the single most important thing for that individual to do those exercises? No, probably not. Not if the tendon is not gliding already. You know, it's let's create a situation where that tendon that is stuck is in the optimum position to regain its full glide. And you know what the irony is? The greatest success that I've ever had, because the little finger drives us all crazy, Flexor tendon injury, little finger, zone two, the position of the MP does not determine whether there's glide in zone two. Only IP flexion and extension does. But if I take the little finger MP joint and place it in hyperextension, because we are all are more mobile there, I will maximize the ability for flexor digitorum profundus glide within zone two, superficialis glide within zone two, differential FDS, FDP glide within zone two, maximum elongation of the interosseous muscles, of which there actually aren't many on the little finger, maximum IP joint motion. Look at what I get by that one position. And the tendon gliding exercises in that example are not more important at that moment in time. So Judy, I want to go back because you mentioned, and we've been talking about casting, but you kind of alluded to the fact of why plaster of Paris is important. And can you speak to that? Because many of us, 
I have had thermoplastics throughout my whole career and less casting some talk about why it's important, why it is maybe superior in these instances than utilizing a thermoplastic material. All I can say is if on one occasion you could see, feel, and touch a hand that was really stiff, you feel of it, you close your eyes, and it's firm, hard, unyielding, the joints are stiff, you look at it and it's a little red and inflamed, it's just a little reactive, it's just not a happy hand. And you then, three days later, see that same hand coming out of a plaster of Paris cast. And the skin is mobile and flexible. It's calm. The edema is down. You can see the skin creases. I did not think before this technique that it was physiologically possible to change the character of human tissue so rapidly. Human tissue that had gotten so kind of beyond the norm. And I strongly, strongly believe it is because of the intimate contact of plaster Paris. The newer casting materials, they have been developed to immobilize a bone, not to provide an intimate contour. They're also hard with rough edges, okay? Plaster of Paris, you can, it's like playing in your mud pie house. Uh (laughs) You can can make anything you want to out of it. You can conform it. Now, having said that, there are the occasional clinical circumstances where the problem is almost purely mechanical. Okay, let's say you have a proximal phalanx fracture and the dorsal apparatus is really adherent to the proximal phalanx, okay? Yes, there's going to be some interosseous muscle tightness, no question, but the whole hand is not stiff. The individual has good control of the wrist. They You know, it's just that one joint that is throwing off the hand pattern. That is a more mechanical problem. And you do see those. And they may do well with something else. But if you choose thermoplastic splinting material, it can be taken off and therefore it will be taken off. And as soon as you take it off, you cancel out everything that you gained in the preceding time that it was on. So it's just kind of, I hate to use the word stupid, but it's kind of stupid to try to change the pattern of motion and then take it off and encourage them to revert back to that pattern of motion. I mean, it just is so non-productive. And so the cast is, first of all, non-removable. Second of all, very intimate in its contact. And there have been many, many times I've treated someone with the Sims technique where the only goal of the first cast was to reduce the edema because they would come back in three days and it would be loose. You know, it would slide up and down. And the patient needs a new cast to really be firm and secure. And you're not going to make it too tight if you're experienced. But, you know, you, it's a learning curve with plaster Harris. And everybody thinks it's old-fashioned. And that's fine. Let them think that. But nothing works as well. For our listeners, if there's somebody that's a little anxious about using plaster of Paris, where do you suggest that they start? Like, to gain that experience of working with the material? Well, I think that's a fabulous question. 
there are a number of different ways you can go. Number one, if you can find a retired orthopedic surgeon, they are probably old enough to have started their career by applying cast themselves in Plaster Paris. Now, you'll drive them a little crazy if you tell them that you're going to hold the empty joints in extension <laughs> because they will not understand that. <laughs> but they can teach you the characteristics of working with Plaster Paris. And there are some resources, old resources, that talk about Plaster Paris. There's a chapter I wrote years ago. It was in the journal Hand Therapy, Plaster Paris, the Forgotten Splinting Material. And if somebody's looking for that in an old edition, you can go to bracelab.com, clinician's classroom, and you can search and find a copy of that that you could download, no charge. You can gain access to it. And that gives you some references there as well. The other thing that I would encourage, let's say you have another therapist and you work together, buy some plaster of Paris, put a cast on each other. That is one of the best ways to learn, especially if you agree you're going to wear it home overnight. You'll really learn quickly what's <laughs> uncomfortable and what isn't. That's true. It's, it's just like anything else. You were not comfortable with thermoplastic the first time you made a, a thermoplastic orthosis, were you? Mm -hmm. We no. all made really bad ones in the beginning. <laughs> so you just need to do it over and over and get a feel for it. Another thing that I suggest is you know, go by a construction site and get some PVC pipe they're throwing away and somehow stabilize the PVC pipe and just wrap plaster Paris around it. You know, your stockinette, your padding, and your plaster Paris the way you would and just practice smoothing it out and letting it hard, then practice taking it off. I think that's the piece that is a little intimidating as well is the removal. It is indeed. I totally agree with that. And a cast saw is expensive. I recognize that there are blocks to this, but what is the best thing for your patient? What gets you the best result? That really is where we need to stay focused. And it's like anything else. It's a skill to learn. Yeah. Well, find an orthopedic surgeon who will teach you how to remove casts. Practice that. There's always somebody that is willing to put out a hand and cast it. You get the practice of casting at the practice of removal. There are cast technicians still, but I would venture in the orthopedic world, the majority of those are definitely using the newer casting materials and not plaster Paris. And if they're young, they may not have used plaster Paris at all. So, but I don't know that this is accurate, but you might want to find out. I don't know whether they still use plaster Paris when they're trying to straighten the baby's foot. Mm-hmm. For club feet. Mm -hmm. For club feet. And the other thing I think of is cerebral therapists who focus with CP kids use plaster Paris. So try to find somebody who has the skill set who can share it with you. But the best thing is to just put a cast on and take it, you know, just do it over and over, just the same way you did with thermoplastics. Now you can do it with your eyes closed. It's no different. I know I asked about patients that are a little bit further out. How soon after, when you see a stiff hand, how soon can you start using Sims on a patient? Well, everyone, of course, is most concerned about flexor tendon repairs. Okay. 
And you don't want to create a situation where the patient is pulling down against an unyielding block. But I don't particularly think about it that way. I think about it as allowing motion to occur where it needs to occur. But obviously, you need a relatively intelligent patient and a, someone who understands what you're trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. So it depends on your relationship with the hand surgeon as to how early I would use it with flexor tendons. It would have to be a joint decision, in my opinion. But certainly at the six-week mark, you usually have nothing to lose. And the good news is the stiffer the finger is, or the, I should say, the less the glide is of the tendon, the more it's stuck, then the stronger it is. So, you know, you worry about the tendons that are moving too well. But sometimes it's maybe a cast overnight to just help them learn how to move. It's not this arbitrary, all or none, do this exactly this way, or there's no cookbook. It's whatever that person needs most at that moment to move them forward into better movement. So it can't be too early unless you're concerned about a tendon coming apart. That would be my only hesitation. But think about it. Most of the stiff hands we treat, we're not treating the pathology. We're not treating what was repaired. It's usually so far out that those are long healed. We're treating the stiffness. We're not treating the original diagnosis. And that's what gets us hung up, I think. We, as therapists, particularly are accustomed to treating the diagnosis. And that's what you have to let go of. And you have to think, okay, that's now irrelevant because it's healed. I now need to focus on the stiffness and I need to treat that. Actually, have your paper right in front of me. <laughs> That's oh. what I was because <laughs> there were just such great points that even an an article that was written several years ago it just several still years. has. We won't say how long. <laughs> it still has just some great, again, just a really nice tool to have in in our toolbox. And like you said, every patient is so different, and we are treating we're treating what's in front of us. We aren't treating that diagnosis that comes over on the prescription and what our patient needs right at this moment. That's what we try. And if it is this, if it is another intervention or whatnot, we have all these tools and this is just another thing to try. Yes. It's like anything. This is not the answer for every patient. Nothing is. But this is the answer for a select group of patients, in my opinion, for which there is no other answer that works. So, you know, people often ask me, well, how do you get started with Sims? You know, because it's a lot. It kind of is. It scares me. Well, think about a patient who has the stiffest hand you've ever seen. The hand surgeon has absolutely nothing to offer that individual because there's no place you can do surgery to relieve the stiffness. The surgeon is usually frustrated with that type of patient because he or she has nothing to offer. So if you as a therapist will take that surgeon's most difficult, frustrating patient who is not making progress and you have something to offer, you're not going to do any harm. You're not going to make the hand worse, are you? I mean, it's pretty bad already. 
that is a great place to start because you then have success with the most challenging patient. What that does is open the door with the surgeon for you to use this technique slowly with another and another, and it then becomes integrated as part of your repertoire and the, the surgeon will buy into it. Don't start with something that is really iffy. You're not sure whether it will do harm or good. Start with a, a hand where there's kind of nothing to lose. It's a great place to start because then everybody's happy and you feel good and you have a success when you think it wasn't possible. But I will guarantee you and I'll guarantee everybody who's listening, you will maybe more than once take off the cast too soon and you'll watch it go right back where it was because we get really uncomfortable and you probably have to do it once and get uncomfortable in order not to do it the next time. (laughs) Got to be a little gutsy in this. You got to be a little gutsy. (laughs) Well, you've got to be gutsy, but not wildly with forethought, focus, understanding, rationale. You have a clear goal of where you're trying to get to, and you have a clear rationale of why this is the best method to get you there. It's not just wild and woolly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's still science behind it and and physiology. Got to remember yes. that. Yes. <laughs> right. And anatomy. Don't forget that. And anatomy. Yes. <laughs> All the things. All, the All things. those subjects. Yep. <laughs> Well, Judy, this has been fantastic. I feel empowered. I'm excited. I'm well, I'm leaving on vacation for a week, but I'm going to be thinking all week on the beach about these two patients that I have that I want to use this on when I get back. I've actually already spoken to the surgeon about it and she's all in as well. So, and I'm definitely using it on mine. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I encourage everybody to ask around in your clinical community in your town, is anybody doing it? And to be able to talk to somebody else specifically about a patient and make the decision is a really great place to start. And the other thing I have to offer is over the last six months, we started a small online discussion group about SIMS. Now, when I say we, that's Bracelet. We sponsor it. But because I'm working on retiring, I was involved in those early sessions, and we now have identified leadership who's going to continue that in the future. We will sponsor it only from the point of view of the technology, you know, and sending out notices and that sort of thing. So if anyone is interested in being part of that discussion group, send an email to support at bracelab.com and say, I would like to be on the SIMS discussion group list. And we will put you on that and we'll send you notices of when the next one's going to occur. That's fantastic. Thank you for offering that up. Sharing of the knowledge. Well, we're trying to give people a little more network. Yeah. To work through this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. 
You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit asht.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Podcast.